We are buying largely industrial buildings. They always have a single tenant. And before we deep dive into what we do, you know, I think sometimes it's helpful to just define the industrial space as a whole. So, you know, industrial really, it has several main components and then some specialty subsets of it. But largely, you're going to have warehouse manufacturing industrial, and that's the kind of sphere that we play in. You're looking at, you know, large open spaces, metal-sided walls, typically, you know, flat roofs, really an unsexy real estate, right? It's essentially uh, what we call utility real estate in that its value is truly ultimately tied with the tenant that's in place and the value that that tenant is able to use the real estate to make the goods or services that they do. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 222 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. In this episode, we have Neil Walgren. Neil is the CEO of MAG Capital Partners, a real estate investing firm that specializes in industrial real estate acquisitions and dispositions, as well as triple net leases and sale leasebacks. In this episode, we'll be talking about how industrial real estate investing works and why the sale leaseback strategy works so well. So if you're looking for an alternative way to invest in commercial real estate, then you need to listen to this episode. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a quick favor and leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. If you love it, give us five stars. And if you hate it, hey, give us one star. But in any case, leave us a review. It'll help support the show a lot and will help us grow to get more listeners. And the more listeners we have, the more we can invest into this podcast and invite better guests. And who knows, by spreading the show, we might be able to reach someone who needs to hear it so they can learn more about real estate investing and potentially change their lives. This real estate market is still incredibly hot. And if you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan for rental properties with rates as low as 4%, you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener and I'll give you a discount on our processing fee. And now on to the show. All right, Neil, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Thanks for having me, Sean. I'm Neil Walgren. I'm the COO at MAG Capital Partners. My responsibilities there include you know, basically strategy, uh, capital markets, equity, and really getting the money in place at the right time, uh, at the right amounts for ultimately purchasing commercial real estate. We have a, a specialty niche, if you will, where we focus as an investment group on buying single tenant net lease, full triple net industrial properties. So we can chat about that a little bit and we buy them through sale leaseback. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't think a lot of our listeners will know what triple lease is, what sale leaseback is. So why don't you go ahead and kind of guide us what you guys do and what like those different terms are. Yeah, absolutely. So to take this from a top-down level, my goal today here is to uh, hopefully bring some new perspectives in terms of how you know your listeners look at commercial real estate and especially how this asset class maybe compares with both single family and also you know multifamily, which is typically the way most folks get their toes in the water on the commercial real estate space. But but yeah, you know ultimately we are buying largely industrial buildings. They always have a single tenant. And before we deep dive into what we do, you know, I think sometimes it's helpful to just define the industrial space as a whole. So, you know, industrial really, it has several main components and then some specialty subsets of it. 
But largely, you're going to have warehouse manufacturing industrial, and that's the kind of sphere that we play in. You're looking at, you know, large open spaces, metal-sided walls, typically, you know, flat roofs, really an unsexy real estate, right? It's essentially uh, what we call utility real estate in that its value is truly ultimately tied with the tenant that's in place and the value that that tenant is able to use the real estate to make the goods or services that they do. So most of these tenants are manufacturing companies in this type of space or uh, distribution companies where they're either having goods you know, come in and out of their industrial space or um, they actually use that space for the creation of goods, whether it be a final end product going to consumers or a business to business type of manufacturer who's making intermediate parts that they send somewhere else for final assembly. Other types of commercial industrial real estate, the other one's really... You can have multi-tenant flex industrial. And that's, I mean, imagine, um, you know, usually in the kind of industrial part of town, you might see, you know, long buildings that'll have multiple bays. They'll have lots of tenants and they might be smaller. They might be, you know, screen printers or, you know, a small demo shop or even just a a storage space. You know, most of them will have about 80% warehouse, about 20% office and bathroom. And, you know, they have just a lot of uses they can be used for. A lot of times they'll have truck loading docks in order to facilitate either drop off or pickup for whatever it is they're making. But that's going to be a little different just because you have a multitude of tenants. So that's going to be treated a little bit more like an apartment complex, you know, multifamily on that space. And then the last one is specialty industrial. And that can have a lot of different looks and feels. You know, common examples are, you know, laboratory, R&D or tech type of space. I mean, Everything from, uh, you know, biotech to heavy gases, irons, really things that require a very specific kind of building in order for that tenant to operate. They're almost always built a suit and they will really be almost an independent class in and of themselves. And what is your responsibility as a landlord? Do you need to go out and build this for your tenant or is the tenant responsible for that? Some people do build a suit. Largely in those scenarios, typically... You're going to have credit tenants, which are kind of a term used for you know publicly traded or very high revenue tenants uh, like your Amazons or Walgreens. And new builds are often built to suit. So like an Amazon's going to build a state of the art warehouse and distribution center for their you know ultimate good storage and you know the robot integration and you know Wi-Fi and all, all the pieces they need. They're going to build that to suit. Largely, the the space that we play in is is working in class B industrial, typically built in the 90s, early 2000s, or possibly earlier and having just had, you know, renovations and upkeep done along the way. And so you asked on who's responsible for these. Typically with a single tenant industrial property, most leases are structured as triple net. And what that means is your big three expense items are going to fall and stay the responsibility of the tenant instead of us as a landlord. And those three are insurance, they're going to be taxes. And the third is maintenance slash utilities. So really the, the operational upkeep piece. So really the kind of one of the advantages, especially relative to other, you know, real estate investment types of a triple net lease is really there's no surprises. You know, as a, a landlord, as an ownership group, you have rent that comes in and that's dictated by the lease. There's essentially zero expenses that can cause that rent to deviate between when the tenant pays and ultimately you're able to pay your investors, you know, a relatively high cash flow from day one with a high degree of certainty. Mm-hmm. So just to clarify, you're going to get basically these same payments every single month 
because they're paying for the variable costs, like the increased taxes, increased insurance, and any maintenance and repairs um, that you don't have to pay as a landlord for like multifamily or single family uh, rentals. That's correct. Although most of these leases tend to be much longer term than what you might find in retail or multifamily. So, you know, in the space that we're playing in, you know, we're typically signing new leases with the tenants in the range of 15 to 20 year terms. Now, if we had a fixed rate rent, we would ultimately be losing buying power if we had a fixed income coming in every year because we'd be losing out to inflation. So how we adjust for that is we actually work in annual rent bumps. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. But you know, our firm, we typically, just to use an example, will write in 2% per year increases in rent. And those kick in automatically with that same triple net feature. What would you say is the biggest risk for this type of investing? It's uh, really important to know where does that risk lie. So industrial is a little different than single tenant, you know, single family home investment, or even a multifamily apartment complex in that both of those are really tied to the bones of the real estate fairly tightly. You know, your appraisal matters a lot, your demographics matter a lot. And the quality of tenant is important, but not a deal breaker, right? You can lose a tenant in an apartment complex, or even if if your home renter moves out or gets evicted, life goes on, you get it filled back in, and it really doesn't affect the value of that home so much. Industrial is a little different. In industrial, really the bones of the real estate matter less, and the true risk comes from the credit worthiness of the tenant. So think of it almost like a binary occupancy, right? It's either they're in, they're paying rent, you got 100% occupancy, or they're out and you're at 0%. So really, you have to do a much deeper dive into the credit worthiness of that tenant when you're buying that real estate up front, such that you very much feel good about the prospects of that tenant staying viable and not defaulting on their lease for the period of time you expect to hold that real estate. Yeah. I mean, I guess worst case scenario, something happens like a borders where they go out of business or like Sears and they just have to vacate. I guess what is like the solution after that? Once they have to leave, you're left with an empty building. What next? There's different ways to approach it. One thing we do as a firm that we started doing about three years ago is we actually work in language into the lease that requires our tenants to submit quarterly financial statements to us. So that's really nice. So we're able to get to really keep a, a tight pulse on the financial health and welfare of our tenant on a quarterly basis. And ultimately, we'd be able to see, you know, blood in the water if they did start to, you know, lose profitability or start going into the red. And if that happens, there's several different options you can do. You know, the first is you can work with a tenant, have some conversations. Do I need to, you know, do some rent abatement, you know, adjust the terms of the lease to, you know, help get through maybe a, a temporary, you know, crunch in cash. The second thing you can do is you can work with them and possibly facilitate, you know, basically private equity groups or other ownership groups often will come in and buy a distressed company. And when that happens, that new buyer, you know, usually is getting a good deal on, on the business, but they will absorb the lease and the obligations that go with it. So that's good for you as a landlord. And the third option, you know, if all that falls through is to release it. You know, ideally, if you see the, you know, this uh, ongoing prospect of the tenant staying viable, you know, kind of shrinking, you can, you know, basically hire a, a releasing firm, have them start working and working to get that space filled before it's fully empty and on a full default there. Yeah. You know, I saw some buildings like uh, the Cisco buildings over in like San Jose and Milpitas, and they've been empty for a while, but I guess 
they are maybe holding out until they find a good tenant to fully occupy those buildings. Yeah. Well, one thing to know, oftentimes, especially if it's signed by you know, a big company like Cisco, there are things that are known as dark leases. So a dark lease is when, say, a company like Cisco is still liable for the lease on that property. They've made the decision to vacate that building, but they still have to pay rent. And those leases are very strong contracts to the landlord. So they may be working to perhaps find a subtenant. And that way they can you know, kind of mitigate the losses or even sometimes make money if they're able to lease it out to a subtenant for more than their lease obligation is to the master landlord. So just because it's empty doesn't mean that the lease has been defaulted on, especially if it's for, with a national grade tenant like Cisco. Okay, good to know. Earlier, you mentioned something called like a sale leaseback. Do you want to explain what that is? Yeah. So there's two main ways that you can buy real estate on the market. The most common is going to be, you know, basically a stabilized acquisition. What that means is you are buying a piece of real estate. Typically, there's a tenant in place and that tenant already has a lease with the owner. And when that owner sells the real estate, the lease obligation of the tenant basically transfers to the new owner. So that new owner becomes the recipient of that set of cash flow streams that are dictated by the lease. A sale leaseback is a little different. And that's when you are buying the real estate from an owner occupant. And so, you know, just to use an example, we typically will buy from manufacturing companies that also own their own real estate. And so they will sell us the building that they own and they will simultaneously sign a brand new 15, 17, or even 20 year full absolute net, triple net lease at the same time upon the completion of the sale there. So they're essentially exchanging a, a large amount of proceeds in the form of the sale of that building for a long-term obligation form of you know being a tenant and having a rent obligation for the next 15 to 20 years. And why would someone want to sell the property that they own just to rent it back out? There's several reasons. Most of our acquisitions actually come from manufacturing companies that have recently sold to private equity groups. So their reason, just to use one example, is they will come in, they'll buy a manufacturing company, usually as part of a larger portfolio, typically all within the manufacturing sector. And private equity groups don't like to own real estate because they can't get the returns that they can by investing in the operating companies by owning real estate. So they would prefer to release that capital that's tied up in the building and reinvest that into the operating company by either paying down corporate debt, by reinvesting in, say, new manufacturing lines, or even bringing on additional headcount, really things that they specialize in order to grow that company in the way that they think they can. That's typically why they acquire that company in the first place. So, and one other reason is from a leverage point. If you own, just we'll use a house example, right? If you have a house, say it's worth 100,000 and you own it outright. If you want to say, take out a mortgage on that house, you can, right? You can basically refinance it. You might get 70, 80%. So you might be able to take out 70 or 80 grand against collateralized against that house. If you sold that house and then turn around to lease it, you could extract the entire value. You could extract the whole 100,000. That spread can actually be fairly meaningful when you look at you know buildings that are 10, 15, 20, 30 million dollars. So, And then the last bit is taxes. Ultimately, if you are a renter, 100% of your rent payment is tax deductible. Whereas if you're an owner, a much smaller amount, just a kind of a capped level of mortgage interest 
toward that mortgage that you have on the building is, is able to be written off. Yeah, I think I guess there's two schools of thought for, I guess, uh, like commercial property ownership. So one is like the Walgreens model where it's like you said, they want to focus on the business of being a great Walgreens company and they just lease out their buildings versus McDonald's who want the operation side, but also the real estate behind it as well. Yeah, and it is. It's a very different set of risk and it's a different way of looking at it. But, you know, ultimately the needs are going to be different for different groups, but usually private equity, ultimately, if there's an owner occupant that is looking to aggressively grow that business, typically a sale leaseback makes more sense than taking out additional debt on the property and staying in the ownership position. Mm -hmm. So what does a typical deal look like for you guys? I mean, some recent ones, uh, you know, in 2020, we closed, I guess, 10 different properties, almost all manufacturing. Tenants ranged, you know, we usually buy in the Midwest. And that's for several reasons. The first is you're usually able to get better cap rates in the Midwest than the coastal regions. And that means you're able to essentially get more cash flow from that tenant for the same amount of purchase price for the real estate. So if you're looking for cash flow optimization, that high cap rate sector of the country is, is optimal. And the second piece is most of them are national manufacturing firms. So being centrally located in the US really makes sense just from a logistical standpoint, because they're shipping to the left to the West Coast and the East Coast. Examples of tenants, one was we bought two aerospace manufacturing companies. And these companies made everything from wing spars to gears to engine components to you know, all sorts for Boeing, for Lockheed, for Bell Helicopter, a lot of government contracts, long-term. Those are great. They're just very solid income streams. They have long-term contracts and ultimately a mix of civilian and government customers. So that industry we really like. Another one was we bought two food manufacturing companies. So one was a, a frozen pie manufacturer up in Rochester, New York. And that was interesting. That was actually a subset of industrial called cold storage. And that is, I mean, kind of like it sounds, a section of the building, usually not the entire thing, but a section that is walled off, insulated, and able to be temperature controlled to a very precise degree to allow storage of either frozen or refrigerated goods. We actually really like cold storage because it costs a lot of money to build new cold storage. And if you're able to buy existing inventory, which there's not a ton of, usually there's a ton of demand pressure on that kind of real estate. And then just to use one other example, we bought a company in Phoenix, or excuse me, we bought a piece of real estate in Phoenix tenanted by a company that made hair and skin products. And what these guys did, they were not a consumer facing brand, but they were a co-packer. And so you would have a, a consumer brand, say like Revlon, would go to these guys and say, hey, here's the recipe of my new anti-wrinkle face cream. <laughs> you know, I want you to make 10,000 gallons of this. And these guys would basically produce this product to spec and then ultimately send it out for, you know, packaging and selling to that retail facing, consumer facing company. Awesome. And what would you say is like a typical price point that you look for? And how do you determine the return that you get from the asset? Great questions. Each firm kind of specializes in, you know, I would say some scope or scale of real estate that they're playing in. You know, we play in what's called mid market. Um, so we're usually minimum about 5 million. Below 5 million, you end up kind of a lot of competition from individual investors. And then we usually cap out around 20 or 25 million on the high side. So that, you know, mostly in the Midwest, we're looking at buildings usually between about 100 to 300,000 square feet. 
And, you know, I would say on average about $15 million is a average purchase price of the kind of real estate that we're buying. So we get debt on each property. So usually about 70% or so from commercial lenders. And then the balance, the 30% left over is equity. And so that equity will be raised a combination of our team as managers. We co-invest typically about 15% of that equity. And then the balance will come from investors within our network. So I know for like the multifamily play, a lot of people like to go in there, boost up rents. You know, they do their um, basic rehab, boost up rents, and then pray for the cap rates to shrink a little bit, and they either refinance or sell. And that's how they make the bulk of their profit. Is that the same for commercial? You know, it's similar. So there is a value add component. But first, you know, we optimize first for cash flow, right? And when we take ownership, what's great is, you know, it's 100% occupied. It cash flows very well from day one in a very predictable manner. So typically, we're able to deliver 8 to 9% from day one on an annualized basis to our investors. And then as those annual rent bumps kick in, the amount that we distribute out will usually go up roughly about a half percentage point per year. So it'll go eight and a half percent, nine, nine and a half. That part's very predictable because it's governed by the lease. The second piece is uh, slightly more subjective and that's how do we build value? Really, it's three ways. One is, you know, kind of a standard pay down principle on the loan. So it's, it's always fixed rate debt. Every month where we make a payment to the bank for the mortgage, we're paying down some of that principal on the outstanding principal owed on the debt there. The second piece is really kind of unique on how commercial real estate is valued. So commercial real estate, it's a function of NOI, which is your net operating income, basically gross rents minus expenses, NOI divided by your cap rate. So even assuming your cap rate stays the same, that NOI you want to increase. And the way, say, an apartment complex tries to increase NOIs is either to minimize their expenses or they think they can you know, invest some money into the building and boost rents or boost occupancy. All those will achieve that. We're able to have NOI go up with a high degree of certainty really by being hands-off. Because of the structure of that lease, there's no expenses. Every year it goes up by 2%. So we know with a high degree of certainty that NOI is increasing every year, even assuming a constant cap rate, we're building value in that way. And then the third way is kind of interesting, definitely more subjective. We've been very successful as an ownership group over the last five years in this. That really is banking on credit enhancement. And so what I mean by that is, let's say you have two buildings and they're identical, right? We'll make an example and say they're both restaurants, right? You have two identical buildings. One is tenanted by, say, McDonald's, and the other one is tenanted by also fast food joint, but it's just a local kind of mom and pop fast food joint. You know, same lease, same everything. You as an investor, do you expect to pay more for the building tenanted by McDonald's or the mom and pop one? Yeah, McDonald's for sure. Exactly, right? Because it's a much higher credit tenant there and you have a much higher degree of certainty that that particular tenant is going to honestly is going to pay their bills or pay their rent. So the same goes for commercial real estate. And oftentimes we will buy a tenant with a credit score, you know, somewhere in the middle, right? And if the private equity company that backs them, if they're successful over that five years that we own the real estate, often they grow the tenant companies pretty substantially. They might double or even triple you know, sales per year and make them more profitable by controlling expenses of the company. 
And, you know, even all things being equal, now we have that same piece of real estate, but we have a much stronger tenant financially in place. And now we can actually compress the cap rate because of that credit enhancement and sell at a higher appreciation. Hmm, Very interesting. And how does commercial financing work exactly? And what are some of the intricacies behind it that differentiate it from like, let's say residential financing? You know, one of the biggest ones is agency debt versus recourse debt. So again, I'm in the commercial world here. So, you know, comparing to say multifamily, multifamily gets Fannie and Freddie backed loans from the government. And because of those, they actually get really low rates uh, and they're non-recourse, which means even if the property forecloses, the bank can take the property, but they cannot go after the owners on a personal level. Industrial is a little different. Really, you don't have that, you know, Fannie, Freddie debt extended by the government for the industrial space. So most lenders, if you want competitive rates, will require the owners, typically the managers of an investment to sign personal recourse such that they really have a lot more skin in the game. And really, that's a major difference. The term, the rates and the leverage are about the same. We usually will get about 70% loan to value on our properties I know residential, sometimes 75 or even 80 for single family homes, but you know, kind of ballparking the same. And then as far as uh, interest rates go, it's usually about a point higher in the industrial field than what you might see in single family or multifamily. So, you know, right now we're seeing pretty competitive rates in like the low to mid threes, whereas, you know, in the residential space, kind of low twos right now. Oh, wow. I didn't know you can get a commercial loan for something in the mid threes. That's actually pretty good. It's wild. I mean, it's a crazy time right now. <laughs> uh, two years ago, it was you know closer to five and a half, but you know we're taking advantage of it, and we like to get long term fixed rate debt. And honestly, you know this debt is so cheap in comparison to other capital sources that you know most folks, really us included, try to optimize you know to get as much cheap debt as you can in order to improve the overall economics of an investment. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I work as a hard money lender, so I see rates in the 8.5%, 9%. And to me, this is normalized now. Yeah, even for like our long-term debt, for people who don't base it on their debt to income ratio, we base it on income itself, on the property itself. Those are going to be in like the four to five, six range, you know, so 3.5 or something for commercial sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, now, so bear in mind, a lot of that security that a lender is getting is tied to the creditworthiness of the tenant. So, you know, really it's doing your homework in terms of feeling good about how reliable that tenant is, is good for you as an investor. And it's also good for your lender. You know, both sides benefit with that tenant staying in place and paying the rent on time. So, you know, really a a lot of that kind of pre-work that we do and, and what we do as a firm is actually build a full, what's called a credit memo. It's about a 10 page document for each each investment that we put together that kind of deep dives into, you know, kind of does a, a light, um, almost, you know, private equity level analysis of the company, you know, and it looks at balance sheets and, you know, quick ratios and financial summaries, but it also deeper dives into the, you know, customer breakdown and really their cash reserves and what they will look like before they sell the building. And then after the sale leaseback, because they're getting a big infusion of cash, we want to know, Hey, how are you going to use this? Are you paying down corporate debt? Are you paying off the owner who's going to go to Tahiti? We want to see that money flowing back into the business to make the business stronger. So if you can make a strong case for that, lenders are willing to extend much lower interest rate debt because they feel there's a much higher degree of certainty of payment on that debt. 
Right. And when you're saying long-term debt, are these like 30-year fixed loans? Most of the loans are between 20 and 25-year, but most of them have a 10-year term. So you know, our usual hold horizon as a company, we like holding properties, I guess, about five years, five to seven years or so. And that allows us to still have some wiggle room, exit long before we ever have to worry about refinancing the loan. Yeah. So just to clarify, there are a 20 or 25-year loan, meaning that if you were to pay on the same schedule, then you would have paid it in 20 or 25 years, but they only last for 10 years. So by year 10, there's a balloon payment. We have to pay out the balance or you know refinance. Are there any prepayment penalties with commercial loans? So most recourse loans, some will have a small bit, but it's not terrible. Where you run into kind of a, a whole nother animal is CMBS. And I don't know how much you play with CMBS or not, but you know, for your listeners, you know, CMBS is a, a commercial mortgage-backed securities. I and mean, ultimately, the plus sides of it is you get a typically 30-year amortization, which decreases your rent payment, increases your cash flow. And also, you typically get even lower interest rates, you know, usually maybe 50 basis points lower than, you know, other industrial debt. The downside of it is they're very rigid, where if you sell anything less than 10 years, you have defeasance and you end up paying a fairly steep prepayment penalty, especially if it's in the first five years of ownership there. So you're very much, you know, kind of incentivized slash forced to, you know, hold the deal as close to about the 10 year mark as possible. And, and the banks do that because they're looking for, you know, the yield from that loan and they're looking for the certainty of it. And that's why they give you better terms. Right. And do you need a key sponsor where they have, you know, enough net worth to cover the amount of the loan? Yeah, especially for these recourse loans that we get. So, you know, for us, our two principals, you know, are the key sponsors. So they sign on the debt personally. But if you're, you know, a newer investor trying to get into this or part of an investment group without, you know, a high enough level of net worth, then you would likely have to bring in a key sponsor to qualify. Mm -hmm. And probably with experience too, right? Like they won't give you this loan unless someone in your group has done it before. It helps. Yeah. I mean, you're familiar. Really, you know, the lending relationship is two things. I mean, one is, do you have the numbers to back this investment that you're seeking? And the second is, do you have track record? Do you show up? Is there a good finesse, a good exchange with this lender? And and honestly, we try to choose a small amount of lenders and do repeat deals for that very reason. Right. Yeah. They give you better terms if you keep using them over time. Yeah. And you can just move quicker, you know, especially if you keep a, a similar business model from project to project. You call these guys up. If you've already done three or four deals together, it's much easier to underwrite, look at the credit of the tenant and you know, ultimately get a term sheet. Awesome. So Neil, I want to ask you, how do you end up where you are today? Because I feel like for most investors, they never even touch the commercial side. And here you are buying you know, these $10, $15 million commercial buildings in the Midwest. What is your story? Oh, man. I think everyone's got an interesting story in this space. Very, very few people you know, go right out of school into commercial real estate. You know, Me personally, I actually was a military pilot for about 12 years. Flew C-130s, the Hercules for the Air Force and the Navy. Did that in a very different chapter of my life. No real estate directly involved. But you know, afterwards, I had the opportunity to move to the Bay Area. You know, I have family in the area. A family friend had an investment firm where their focus was building a network of investors and really building equity capability. And this firm would JV with operators, either developers or commercial real estate brokers, 
who typically had an eye for picking and getting under contract good properties, you know, structuring a good investment, but lacked the access to equity capital. So we would partner with them. We had our group of investors. We would raise that capital and ultimately be partners all the way through the life cycle of that investment. That was it was interesting. Uh, we would partner with different operators in different classes. So for example, we had one group that we did multiple deals with who strictly did apartment buildings in Northeast Atlanta, right? Another one did, this guy did multi-tenant retail, largely in Dallas, Fort Worth area. And so each of these operators have their specialties, you know, and we liked it because we were able to diversify and partner with a number of different specialists in these different areas and different asset types, you know, and really how did I end up in the industrial side? One of those groups that I worked with, you know, I just like the groups, the principles personally, and I like the business model. To me, the, the single tenant at least industrial, I love the simplicity, you know, during COVID in 2020, we literally had a, had a perfect distribution track record. It was painfully boring in the sense that, hey, you know, these are core essential industries. They've been in business 40, 50, 60 years often. They're making component parts for a number of critical industries. And, you know, pandemics can come and go and they're fine. And they keep making what they're making and they keep paying rent. And, you know, we do monthly distributions to our investors in an extremely predictable, consistent way. And I love it. You know, it's easy to make promises that you can keep. And it's easy to deliver consistency and passive income in, in its purest form in that sense. Yeah, I love it because, you know, a lot of people reach out to me personally and ask me, hey, how do I get started with real estate investing? And I always say, you know, it's best to network with so many people because from this show, I've interviewed over 200 people so far. Wow. I hear some consistent stories, right, of people doing great things with their business, but they're all different types of businesses. Like, for example, you're the first person in commercial. I thought that COVID was killing everyone in commercial, but here... Obviously, I'm hearing that that you're doing great. My conclusion has been that anything you want to do in real estate can work as long as you understand the right systems and you follow the right people. So it's great that you were able to work at a job and like create your own network through that company and then find the people that you like working with and then go through there. Oh, yeah. And having the right team is so, so critical. I think whether you're an investor investing with a group or whether you're trying to do this yourself, I mean, either way, surrounding yourself with the right people who are there and who are reliable and who show up when they need to and deliver when they need to and who can band together when you're on a tight deadline. I mean, these are complex projects. I mean, when you're closing a $15, $20 million property, there are a lot of stakeholders and there's a lot of moving parts at a level that's sometimes, you know, 10x as complex as maybe a single family acquisition. And you have tight deadlines and you have a seller who needs you know, capital and you have a lender who's, you know, trying to get all their ducks in a row and you have, you know, title and you have environmental and you have, I mean, appraisals and all this stuff, trying to get it together and raising the money quickly on time. I mean, it can be a very complex dance when it works. It's just a, a work of art there. Absolutely. Uh, what would you say would be the most complicated part of this whole process? Or maybe your biggest pain point, because you've been doing this for about a year now, right? So you probably felt like, all right, this part of the pipeline is where we can encounter the most issues? That's a great question. You know, from the equity side, I really run ultimate responsibility with our investors. And I have this really obligation to keep them informed, let them know, you know, what we're working on. And, you know, I think that one of the hardest things is, you know, basically getting my group excited about an upcoming investment deal. 
But ultimately, there's just things out of our control sometimes that affect timing on when we can fully be ready to close on a deal. And, you know, just to use an example, you know, we had a recent deal that was like pretty much ready to go almost a couple of months ago. And we were doing the basically the fine paperwork to reassign the environmental policy to make us beneficiaries after the, the purchase. And there was like one of the environmental inspections was mislabeled and we had to go bring in an outside consultancy. And then they had the bank required a new phase one environmental. And all this was based around what we knew wasn't even an environmental issue, but we just had to get all the pieces in a row and it set it back, you know, maybe six or eight weeks. And, you know, that kind of expectation management for me, that's really one of my biggest challenges that I'm always trying to be sensitive to communicate well, but, you know, be resilient in terms of, you know, knowing that there's things outside of your control that kind of alter the timeline sometimes. But I would say, you know, really third party inspections can be the biggest wild card in terms of timing certainty for, you know, putting together these projects and getting them finally under a ship. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a situation where something didn't appraise well or something like an inspector came up and especially came up that didn't kind of meet your expectation that caused you to have to change terms of the deal? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we've had deals that we as a group have lost money on after, you know, we had one up in Michigan and kind of at the 11th hour, some information was disclosed to us regarding their environmental that showed us, hey, there's a potential here for massive exposure that's not contained. And, you know, it was kind of one of these, essentially, no one wanted to dig more than eight inches down in the soil for fear of what they might find. And no one was willing to, you know, sign um, indemnity uh, such that, you know, they would guarantee the other party would not be liable. And, you know, at the end of the day, we weren't okay with that risk for ourselves and for our investors. And we walked away and it was painful. You know, it was about $200,000 loss in terms of pursuit costs and due diligence. And, you know, sometimes that's the cost of making the right decision to walk away from a project before you're fully in on it. But, you know, luckily those are uncommon, you know, and you learn from experience and you get better early on identifying those problems and knowing what questions to ask such that if you do have to walk away, it hurts a little less at that point. For sure. I mean, even though it sounds like a lot, $200,000 is probably a lot less than your potential $2 million or $20 million issue if this thing actually you know blew up in your face, possibly literally, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and to be honest, the seller was being a little shifty. And it's funny in a sale leaseback because normally if you're just you know, selling a, a property, you have one interaction with that buyer and seller. And then afterwards, both parties go their own separate ways. In a sale leaseback, you're kind of in bed together for 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, that seller becomes your tenant. I mean, both sides are motivated to play nice when it comes to, you know, going down that line, because otherwise you could find yourself in an adversarial relationship with your tenant or your landlord afterwards, which I mean, honestly, is not a great way to start a long-term, you know, 20 year lease relationship. That's right. And let's say you want to be an investor in your company. What is the process like and what are the requirements to even invest with you guys? Yeah, no, absolutely. We we raise uh, most of our funds are 506B offerings, which means we raise capital from a group of folks that we have existing relationships with. So if you are interested, just reach out. We'll have an intro call and you can reach me direct, Neil, N-E-I-L, at magcp, and that's M-A-G-C-P dot com. Happy to chat or answer any questions about the podcast or you know talk about investments coming up. 
Yeah. Now it's really great to hear all of those things you told us about commercial today because you know going into it, I've only heard stories of like Pinterest leaving their building or some of my friends they own some like strip malls, you know, and their tenants are hurting really badly because people aren't going to nail salons, people can't go to the gym, right? And so they're not making money. So what kind of differentiates your guys' investments versus like what my other friends are going through with their strip malls? I find the further you are removed from end users or consumers, the better. So in my opinion, the reason our sector has done so well is because, you know, the majority of them are not, you know, they don't have retail stores. They don't have basically month to month renters in place that really can have a lot of variability uh, from economic factors. You know, COVID hits, you get laid off, furloughed for a few months. That really affects buyers and that affects renters, right? But, you know, manufacturing firms, they're just stronger financially. Most of them have cash reserves that they can, you know, absorb several months or even several years of, you know, kind of downturns uh, or, you know, down months, down years in terms of sales and profitability. And most of them have experience of going through recessions. I mean, you know, if you've been around 40, 50 years, you've probably seen a half dozen or more pretty heavy recessions and you've built up some, you know, corporate resiliency for understanding how to kind of go through those periods. So, you know, in my opinion, that's one of the major reasons. And then also there's been good demand pressure in the industrial space, you know, e-commerce, Amazons, there's just a lot more, you know, grocery delivery, shipping, more people are buying things online and all those, you know, online things require industrial space, whether it's distribution or manufacturing to kind of make that whole system work. And really there's a finite amount of affordable industrial buildings out there. So that's creating a lot of demand pressure, which ultimately works, you know, in the favor of people who are invested in that space. I love it. Definitely. I totally agree with you that the further away you stay from the consumer side, the less variability you have. And I know companies like Boeing and Northrop Grumman, Lockheed, like I used to work there. I used to work at Boeing and Northrop Grumman. So I know that even in a downturn, the government will build them out. And they always want these three companies in place so that they can have quote unquote good pricing for the contracts, but I know like they spend a lot on the contracts. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I fully understand that. But yeah, they can be kind of boring, you know, but I'm like, boring is good when it comes to cash flow and comes to your investment. I mean, I would much rather tell someone you're not going to get much surprises and you're just going to get a very consistent check that you're pleased with once a month, you know, and that to me, me personally, I would take that over, you know, the variability of a, you know, wild development project that, you know, may or may not be successful any day. But, you know, I think for the majority of folks, there's a space in an investment portfolio for at least some of this type of asset, you know, to complement perhaps some riskier or other alternatives. Awesome. Well, Neil, this has been a fantastic episode. Do you have any last minute tips that you'd like to leave to our listeners before we finish up today? There's a lot of good info out there. You know, we have some information on our website, magcp.com, you know, and really just some kind of a, a fundamental industrial information on like why people would want to sell leaseback and that kind of component. And, uh, you know, ultimately just network and learn, you know, especially for folks new to this space. We were all new at one point. Most of us wish we had gotten in a little bit sooner. And, you know, the more you talk and the more you ask for, you know, investor references and, you know, just operators that people have, have been happy working with, you know, I think you learn a lot individually and improve your odds of success. And can you give your contact information one more time? Yeah, certainly. So uh, Neil, N-E-I-L at magcp.com is my email and uh, shoot me any questions or comments that I'm happy to get back to. Perfect. Well, Neil, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate it. 
Cool. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate it as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.